Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Please use your spirit to make your word come alive in our hearts so we may trust Jesus as king and glorify you this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Part of the human condition that we all share is a desire not to give control to God. That's just part of the fall. As, uh, as we see that uh, the serpent was lying in wait outside of the garden and his desire was to conquer Adam and Eve and the same was told to Eve as part of the curse that she would, she would involve losing some control and there was a sense in which they were told that what they needed to do was master that desire for sin to control them. Satan did not want to give up control to God. And what we have in the time of Jesus in his constant confrontations with the Pharisees is a problem of them not wishing to let go of control not let go of their control over the, over the thinking and the power of the people. They held Moses' seat. They were listened to. They were the authorities. But now there is this other person who is claiming to be greater than they are and proving it in the people's vision. Jesus has been constantly pursued by his greatest enemies, the Pharisees, throughout the Gospels, men whose teaching about the Bible was actually often quite close to Jesus' own teaching. But their actions were hypocritical. Jesus said, do as they say and not as they do. He said, listen to them, for they hold the seat of Moses. They burdened the people with unbiblical, unscriptural weights. In uh, traditions that were not actually from the authority of Moses, and they loved recognition for their positions, and they grasped at money. These are things that are played out in many different situations, other confrontations than the one we heard in Matthew in the lectionary this morning. But these men were not, in general, guilty of heresy. They weren't heretics. That's not their problem. They were guilty of pride, of theft, of not honoring father and mother. And ultimately their sin was, of course, the murder of Jesus and then the heresy of teaching that he was not the Messiah. But their other teachings about the Bible were sound, according to Jesus. My point here is that their argument with Jesus in Matthew and their whole, their whole mode of operation was to try to catch Jesus. It was not about theological differences, but rather they were hoping to catch him saying something that would end his campaign for the hearts of the people. Much, much like when we are in our political seasons and we are happy to see that some awful candidate, I'm not referring to anybody specific at all, at, at all right now. I'm not because you would have to just imagine what I meant, and there, I, I don't want you to imagine that. 
But when you see some candidate have to end a campaign because they have made a social gaffe in public, and all of a sudden their secret has been revealed, or their, you know, their, and it ends their ability to continue in the campaign. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They want him to lose ground in public. They are laying in wait, hoping to trip up Jesus just once and to get him to blaspheme, get him to defy them on a major accepted point of theology. But their problem was subtle. They had, they had to try to trick him because they couldn't just point to a problem with his teaching. It was hard for them to come up with something to say about him. Their problem was not with his teaching, the way that his problem was not with their teaching. Their problem was with his existence. His presence as a perceived prophet, his presence as a miracle worker, his apparent growing public perception that he was, in fact, the awaited Messiah, the man who would take David's throne, just the brief point of, of uh, understanding the word Messiah here. The word Messiah means the one who is anointed, the one who is anointed to fill the king's office in Israel. Right? So Messiah means anointed one, and in Greek that word is Christ, is Christos. So that anytime you hear Christ, we are saying Jesus is the Messiah, the king awaited for by the Hebrews. The man who would take David's throne and lead the people to the glory of God's ultimate kingdom. The removal of the shame of the Gentile overlords and the vindicator of the people of God. They were upset that he taught with authority. He was not as their sons. Rather, he was another Moses. And in fact, that's what the Bible had said. Another prophet like Moses would come along. He was raising people from the dead. He was another Elijah. And that meant the people would make his position apparent by confirming that he was, in fact, the coming David. You know that there are times when he did miracles and the people tried to grab him, it says, and make him king. But he slipped out from their midst because it wasn't the right time and the right way. So they are worried that if this keeps going on, the people will make him king, and they will lose their power. This is the one to whom David's own psalm referred. Ask of me, and I will give you all the nations. The ends of the earth is your inheritance, and you will rule them with a rod of iron. So be wise, you kings, and you judges be instructed. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. When Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun, what does it mean? Who is it referring to? Well, earlier in that psalm, it says, it refers to the Son of God. That same psalm says, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. I could back further up in the psalm and say that the words explicitly label the man in question as the Lord's Messiah or the Lord's Christ. 
So Psalm 2 says that the Lord has chosen his Messiah, who will be a threat to the kings of the earth, and they will not defeat him as they wish, because God himself has a father-son relationship with this Messiah. God owns all the nations, and he will give them as a gift to his son, the, as the as God is willing to give this as the crown to his son's enthronement. And this was speaking of David at first, later of any king of Israel. But as much as Psalm 2 gave the Messiah the title Son of God, Psalm 89 makes the Messiah have the title Son of David. Psalm 89, written by Ethan, says... You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Later, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. In the Jewish understanding, the Messiah was David's son. The Messiah is also understood to be God's son. These are two titles regularly used for the Messiah in the time before Jesus. And I won't read the entire passage to you, but in Daniel 7, the Messiah takes up a third title, the title Son of Man, because it says that one like a son of man was lifted up on the clouds of heaven and carried to the throne of God. It's funny because that, that phrase is a casual, um, I don't mean it's casual in the passage, but it is not, it's not a phrase that on its own before that passage was a um, a high-powered phrase. It was a phrase that just meant a guy, a person, someone that looks like a human. In fact, as Daniel is in a vision, I can't see who it is, but somebody that looks like a human is on a cloud. Someone who is like a son of man was raised to the throne of God. That's a that's a big thing. But that was such an important passage about the Messiah that that phrase, the guy that looks like a person, became a technical term for the Messiah. And that's why Jesus most commonly refers to himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David. Now, if you were a Pharisee, which of those titles would seem the safest to you? If applied to Jesus, the man you were afraid the people saw as their popular Messiah. Well, if you wanted to avoid the idea that Jesus could best you with authority, you should avoid calling him the Son of Man. Because the Son of Man was raised up before God's throne and we are told and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the ultimate king, just under God, in God the Father in heaven. Everyone serves the Son of Man. And this is even specifically why Jesus healed the man let down through the roof. Remember, they tore the roof back. They let the man down. What does Jesus say is the reason he does that sign? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He did it so that they would see that the Son of Man has authority on earth. The guy who has authority in heaven has authority on earth, and it's me. You remember the, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They should not imply that Jesus was the Son of Man because that reeked with authority. Likewise, and in fact, when he did finally get them to crucify him, it was by calling himself the Son of Man. That's, that's where he goes. When he wants to trigger, flip that switch, he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Let's see. <clears throat> the Son of Man is a phrase they would want to avoid. So let's look at what about Son of God. They couldn't let people start calling him the son of God because as Psalm 2 said, all the rulers of the earth need to bow trembling before him. And it had been, <coughs> this phrase had become closer and closer to meaning divine. Especially when Jesus claimed that his miracles came from his father. I think it's a mistake to think when you ask the theological question, does son of God mean something divine or not? I think it's obvious that before Jesus came, it was not obviously necessarily a sign of someone divine. David was the son of God. But in Jesus' time, these phrases that have been being used are taking on a meaning that is out of, out of their control because Jesus is doing miracles and talking. So it's changing the way that people hear these things. As he says, I've done these miracles. Where do you think they came from? From me or from God? From man? Jesus answered them, and this is in John 10. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So, he has them bent over a barrel on this problem of the fact that, well, the Bible does say this and Scripture cannot be broken. So maybe it's not a good idea to let Jesus call himself the Son of God or the Son of Man. 
When he says son of God to them, it's starting to sound authoritative, connected to his miracles, and possibly divine. You see, at this point, they already were starting to think, if he says son of God, we might be able to catch him on blasphemy. He may be equating himself with God here. But what if they just say he was David's son? Everybody knows the Messiah is David's son. That's unavoidable. Lots of people, however, were sons of David in Jesus' day. You know, there's lines of families expand. And there's not just one guy who's the son of a David, the obvious king. They couldn't all be the king. It was less specific. Plus, even the king of Israel himself had to be subject to who? To Moses, right? Nobody gets out of the law of Moses. And who's in charge of the law of Moses? Pharisees. They were the guardians of the gates of the law, and they held the seat of Moses. And kings could be brought low by prophets calling them back to submission to Moses. So when Jesus is ready... He baits them with this question because he thinks that they will probably answer this way. Whichever way they answer, they're trapped. He has them in a corner. He asks them this one very simple sounding question. So when you talk about the Messiah, who are you talking about? Son of, son of who? There's some choices. And when he says this, he's daring them to pick a title. We hear the Pharisees in places doing a reasoned calculus about what happens if they make one answer or another, right? You can hear them in Luke 20. They say, he answered them, actually, Jesus answered them. I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So this is the kind of thing we know goes on. They get a question, and then they huddle up and say, okay, which is more dangerous answer to, to give? Similarly now, Jesus is daring them to choose the most trustworthy bit of ice on the frozen lake to put their whole weight on, hoping it doesn't crack. That's what they've been doing to him the whole time. What do, what do you say about this, Jesus? Maybe I can catch you saying something that's, you know, against, against the Bible. We can get you to say something that we can pin on you. But he knows that he can bait them into answering a question. And the trick of it is, all they have to do is agree with the Bible. And he has them. Because the Bible is talking about him. It actually isn't an open-ended question. Everybody knew there were only three possible answers to who's the son of who. And they settle on the one they think is least likely to set them up to admitting that Jesus really looks like a miracle-working, authoritative teacher who comes from God, with God's power and is headed to the throne of heaven to receive all the nations. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, and this is today's lectionary passage in Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
they said to him, Son of David. Now I mentioned in the reading from John 10 a teaching shared by Jesus and the Pharisees alike. Scripture cannot be broken. They agree on that. What was written was truth. So that if it is in Scripture, all one had to do to prove it to say is, was to say, it is written. In other words, God has established this truth as a fact. And this is not a weak or a foolish teaching of the Pharisees. This is a teaching taught by Moses. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.3. David says it. The law of the Lord is perfect. He says the testimony of the Lord is sure. And elsewhere the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a fire on the ground. Purified seven times. It's a truth taught by Isaiah. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, Scripture cannot be broken. And that massive truth is what is being implied in just three little words that Jesus says in this passage. He uses the words, in the Spirit. Let's hear it. No rhyme intended. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Jesus, by saying David spoke in the spirit, is just reminding them of a rule that they all live by. And that Paul later said for us, all scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, Jesus is just announcing checkmate. He is saying, I have you by your own rules, which are also mine. We are bound to believe what we confess. And what we confess is what David said in the spirit, namely something in the Psalms. And I'll read it in a second, but I want to point out to you, as a believer, this happens to you. You know, you're going to sing psalms. You're going to say psalms. It's part of the life of the church. We say psalms every week in our readings. You should be saying them at home, reading them. But as you read them and say them out loud as a Christian, there will be times in your life where you will read across a psalm from the Psalter. And in your heart, you will say, I don't, I don't normally think that is true. <laughs> well, that part right there just uh, is in conflict with me. But as it comes out of your mouth, the words of the Holy Spirit grab you and force your heart to its knees as you say, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. This is right. We believe what we confess. I have had serious times in my life reading the Bible out loud. I had a time where I was, and I won't detail it, it's a good story if you catch me some other time outside of here. 
where I said I read to a whole group of students what I was teaching, something that I, at that moment, didn't believe. I didn't realize I was in conflict with Scripture, but as soon as it came out of my mouth, my wind was knocked out of my chest because I did believe the Bible, but I was having some trouble with some points. When I read this, I lost my breath, and I thought, oh, no, I'm wrong. I guess the Scripture does speak to this point, and I'm trapped. I have to believe what it says. David says in the Spirit, namely this, The Lord says to my Lord, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Psalm 110. Jesus says, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, when we read that, I think we look at that and we say, It seems tricky, but I don't know what he said. Because that didn't make me think, oh, you got me, Jesus. But there's a lot of baggage behind that to understand that we've been talking about. Jesus is not saying the Messiah is not David's son. He's, he is elevating the meaning of son of God. He's completing their wonder if by saying son of God does he mean deity. Normally, a son could not be held to be greater than his father. But if the son of David is also the son of God in a special way, when applied to Jesus, it could also mean that he was equal with God, that he could be greater than David. And there had been other messianic prophecies. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, as applied to Jesus... It means God with us. God with us. Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born, for us a child is a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is why they soon arrested Jesus for blasphemy. After they got to this point, they knew that any question of his messiahship would end in a claim to be greater than any old run-of-the-mill messiah. And that may sound funny, but there were lots of people saying they were messiah during Jesus' day. The Romans had killed a lot of messiahs. But Jesus would claim, and they knew for sure now, every time we push him, he's going to claim to be God's son in a way that we don't mean when we say son of God. Jesus accepted worship. He accepted being called God by his own disciples after his resurrection. Peter calls Jesus God. Paul calls Jesus God many times. John calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Hebrews says Jesus created the world. Jesus created the world. Any Jew who ever used the word Lord for Jesus was calling him God. Any Jew 
who spent all their time saying the word Lord in order to avoid saying the name God, saying the name Yahweh, would not have applied the word Lord to Jesus in a formal worship way because that would mean that they thought his name fits in all those places in the Old Testament where the word Yahweh is used. In fact, Paul does that on purpose. He puts him in the middle of the Shema. There is one Lord and one God. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul says we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, and one God the Father. He puts them together inside of the Shema, directly implying Jesus is that Lord. Thus, the whole church has always taught and accepted and found ample support throughout the Bible for this most fundamental claim of our faith, that Jesus who died to pay for sins and was raised on the third day is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God with us, God in the flesh. That is something you should know. I just want to add on a final word here. When I was planning my sermon back at the beginning, I had this really serious desire to talk about how the Bible talks about itself. I wanted to talk all about Psalm 110 and uh, how Jesus says that it's inspired and Scripture is unbreakably true and the dual, due to the dual nature of the authorship, just as Peter said that no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe about the Bible. The Bible is written by God through men. It has their personality, but it has God's power and choice behind it. I wanted to talk at length about how Jesus portrays Adam, the historical figure of Adam, and Noah, and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, all as historical people, how Paul says that Satan in the garden is historical. How Paul says that Adam's historical actions have universal theological significance. I wanted to talk at length about how Paul says the gospel of Luke is scripture. And how Peter says that Paul's writings are accepted already in his own day as authoritative scripture. But time fails me. And I think that it would uh, fail your patience. Because the Messiahship of Jesus is just too important for me to have missed when dealing with the passage. But I don't think it's an unworthy challenge to, to, to bring here to your thinking, to ask, ask you to start doing this as a question for yourself and, your, and, and me as well. When we read the Bible, say, do I believe God's word? Am I, I'm not asking you to find how bad you are at believing God's word. What I want for you is to add confidence in your reading of God's word. Read a Bible passage and say, this is written in the spirit. This is the pure word of God. Read it and say, and scripture cannot be broken. Do that as an act of worship to the rightful king who sits at the right hand of the ancient of days. Worship Jesus by believing Paul and believing Peter and believing Moses and by believing Isaiah. It will be a blessing to you. It may challenge you, but what we confess in the words of Scripture, we must believe. We are bound to believe because they are the words of Jesus in the Spirit.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would lift, lift us up. Lift our hearts up with faith that your words are true. Show us answered prayers. Show us miracles. Show us people living according to your word and in, enable our hearts to be filled with the good comfort of your Holy Spirit that your words are always true and you can be trusted. Help us to be able to enjoy the blessing of knowing you and trusting your word. Help us to enjoy the worship of Jesus as King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.